Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the number one resource for actors and talent seekers. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage, and I'm here to guide you through every aspect of the entertainment industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. These intimate, inspirational conversations with today's most award-worthy film, television, and theater artists provide you, dear listener, advice on how to live the creative life, personal stories of success and failure alike, and maybe, just maybe, a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. looking for something that's a little more subversive, a little more interesting, okay. and I want to challenge it. I, th- I think when you get to a point where you're able to choose a little bit what you're doing, there is a certain amount of responsibility to tell stories that are going to push the needle a little bit. Hello, listeners, and welcome to In the Envelope. Bright and early on Oscar nominations morning, I have two very exciting guests with me. One of them you've heard on the podcast before, and one of them you have not. Ben, would you like to reintroduce yourself first? Um, Yeah, hi, everyone, and happy Oscars morning. I'm Benjamin Lindsay, the managing (laughs) editor at Backstage, and excited to be bantering about today's Oscar noms. Yes, indeed. Uh, This is airing on February the 10th, but we are recording this on February the 8th because we wanted to wait for Oscar nominations. And that is partly why we have joining us a first-time-ever guest on the podcast, Stephanie. You know, Stephanie, I ask everyone for how they, like, I double-check with everyone how to pronounce their last names, and I've never done oh. that with you because I've never had to say it out loud. Is it pronounced Snipes? It sure is. Just like Wesley Snipes. I was going to say, no relation? No relation, but I get asked that often, and I always say, yes, we're related, and see if I can get people <laughs> to believe me. A distant cousin. Yeah, exactly. I always, that's literally, I always say cousin Wesley, of course. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, Stephanie Snipes, thank you for joining us. Would you like to give us a brief rundown of uh, what you do at Backstage? Sure. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm the chief content officer here at Backstage. And so I am so fortunate to work with Jack and Ben every single day. And I am very excited about Oscar nominations. It is such a fun morning and there's lots of good stuff to talk about too. There yeah, we is. had some surprises. We do. And, you know, other than this brief outline I have written out of, like, introduce Stephanie, touch on Oscar nominations, and introduce guests, like, I haven't run through with either of you, like, what what no. notable trends or highlights we'd like to talk about. Like, what what did you notice? What did you take away from, th- from this list? I mean, I think Best Actress was a race that a lot of people had their mm-hmm. eyes on. And I'm personally... Very happy to see Kristen Stewart, a backstage cover star written by Jack Smart. Um, yes, indeed. I'm really happy to see her pull through with the nomination after missing out on some of the precursors. Yeah. And then Penelope Cruz, very, very similar enthusiasm. Um, and then in terms of someone who missed out while landing all those precursors, mm-hmm. Ms. Lady Gaga, yeah. um, definitely surprising that she didn't make the cut for House of Gucci. House of Gucci, after such a strong awards campaign mm-hmm. only coming through with one nomination for hair and makeup really wow. took me by surprise. So yeah, my eyes were on Best Actress and ultimately I'm pretty happy with how it looks between Nicole Kidman, Penelope Cruz, Olivia Coleman, Jessica Chastain, mm-hmm. and um, the other one that I just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart, yeah. <laughs> that was the race. Here, that- here I was like counting on my fingers. You got it, you got it. <laughs> got it. I, uh, yeah, that was the one I was paying most attention to, too. I was really curious to see how it would unfold because I felt like there were a lot of different directions it could go, but I was excited mm-hmm. to see that Kristen Stewart made the list. I think that's great. Nelby Cruz was a surprise to me, too. I didn't, I don't know why I didn't really see that one coming, yeah. but I'm glad to see her there. I and- saw something going around this morning. She is the first leading actress nominee for two Spanish language films. Um, oh, wow. For Valver and then uh, Perla Mothers. That's great. Yeah, well, and uh, those two were surprises because, as you mentioned, the SAG Awards. The SAG Awards are obviously a big correlation with the Oscars. In fact, the Best Actor lineup is identical. The same five actors are nominated for SAG and for Oscar, which is why Kristen Stewart and Penelope Cruz do stand out. They got in there instead of Jennifer Hudson and Lady Gaga, the SAG nominees. 
So as always, the guilds had kind of a big predictive impact before these nominations. Although I will say, when it comes to Best Picture, a film that did not get a ton of precursors, but did obviously gain critical steam late in the season was Drive My Car, which is Japan's international Oscar entry. I was excited to see that too. It had a few nominations, right? Yeah, Best Director. Best Picture, Best Director. Yeah, for Best Director is no small feat either, yeah. Absolutely. No, I think it's a it's a really interesting it's an interesting list. I think there's some great stuff on here. Me too. I also just need to shout out the fact that Kristen Stewart has been the only in-person interview I've had in two years. <laughs> How funny. So thank goodness she was nominated. No. <laughs> Maybe it was because of you. Well, yeah, it, it was it was our cover that really pushed over the edge, yeah. I think. The backstage bump. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. backstage bump from those photos. <laughs> I would just like to say Olivia Coleman's name out loud because I am totally obsessed with her and I love her. And I was just, I assumed she would be there, but I also wanted to make sure she was. So I'm Ab- Absolutely agreed. And then for playing a younger version of Olivia Coleman, uh, actually, yes, we're, we're, we're giving a little preview of this week's cover story. It'll, it'll come out the, the same day that this uh that this episode comes out. But Jesse Buckley, she's covering our BAFTAs issue February 10th. And she pulled through with the Supporting Actress nomination. I was so thrilled to see that. Agree completely. She did such a remarkable job in that film. Absolutely. And it's always cool when two actors are both nominated for playing the same part, just at different different points. In fact, going off of that, Ariana DeBose could make history as one of the only actors. If she wins, she would be the second actor to ever win an Oscar for a part that's already won an Oscar. Because Heath Ledger and Joaquin Phoenix have both won for The Joker and there were multiple actors that won for playing a Corleone in the Godfather films. But Rita Moreno was the original Oscar winner as Anita. And if Ariana DeBose wins, she would kind of join that elite group. Isn't it uh, like exactly 50 years apart, too? West Side Story, I think, was 1961. And then this is the 2021. So it would be pretty historic to see that happen. And Anjanou Ellis, I was thrilled to see her on here, too. She did, mm. she did such a remarkable job in King Richard, I thought. That that kitchen scene in King Richard, honestly, that one of my kitchen... favorite of the year. Yeah. <laughs> Completely agree with you. So beautifully yeah. done. Yeah, and as far as supporting actress moments, I, I have gone back to Judy Dench's moment in Belfast a lot. Like, she has, she has a moment that I can just cry thinking about. The, close, the closing moment, I assume. Well, no, not even that one. That oh. one's great, too. But it's when she's on the bus and she says, you can't get to Shangri-La from Belfast. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah. Um, Well, the other notable takeaway is that Netflix uh, did very well with these nominations and Mm -hmm. streaming in general did very well with these nominations, which I think like Oscar historians will point to this year as a year that streaming services really broke into the the top awards in a big way. And um, now is when I might try to seamlessly transition to today's guest, Melanie Linsky, um, (laughs) because she is one of the SAG-nominated stars in an Oscar nominee for Best Picture, Don't Look Up, from Netflix. I'm also going to put the two of you on the spot and and just say, (laughs) help me introduce Melanie. Why do we love her? What's the deal? Well, uh, anyone who works with me at Backstage knows that one of my favorite performers of all time is Kate Winslet. And going back to her first screen role, it's also... (laughs) a debut with Melanie Linsky in Heavenly Creatures. And I have loved Melanie's work on screen really ever since then. I, I think she, she's fabulous. And th- this year's performance in Yellow Jackets, in addition to Don't Look Up, really just, uh, I- I'm really happy to see her getting the recognition that she deserves as a leading yes. lady of Yellow Jackets. It's, it's, it's just great to see. Totally. I agree completely. I feel like Melanie Linsky is very relatable. Like, I feel like, she does a wonderful job playing someone that could be any of us in some ways, yeah. but does it on, on such a obviously higher level. I am obsessed with yellow jackets. I just finished <laughs> this weekend. I like binged and then I had to take a break and I went and watched reruns of Arrested Development just to like, as a palate cleanser because yes. yellow jackets <laughs> is super intense super and intense. so good. And she's remarkable in it. And I love her approach is, is pretty incredible because she is kind of this take charge, but also very, in some ways, you know, so damaged from what she's mm. been through. And uh, yeah, she's she's phenomenal. I'm so excited about having her on the podcast. Today. Yeah, yeah. And Jack, do you want to give us a preview of like, what, what did you enjoy most about speaking with her? I feel well, like, yeah. she... thing, like, it's sort of what you both just mentioned, like, first of all, talk about like compelling and yet believable and like this every woman quality 
which I think in her talking about her process for all of her different roles, she kind of revealed that. But yeah, I got to get into it with Yellow Jackets because obviously, I mean, yeah, what a perfect time to be interviewing her in terms of her career and so many juicy characters to talk about, but especially Shauna and Yellow Jackets. And like my number one question when the possibility of booking Melanie Linsky came up was like, I have to ask her about rage and trauma and PTSD. And she was ready to talk about it. And let me tell you, (laughs) this podcast has featured almost 200 guests. It's almost five years old. Whenever a guest comes on and says something we've never heard before, it's a huge feat to me. It just really, really stands out. And Melanie Linsky had like five things that listeners have never heard before. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm excited to listen myself. We haven't haven't gotten a peek at the audio yet. Well, same because I have to go in and edit now. I have to go find the highlights. (laughs) Highlight the transcript. But I know that like half of this transcript is going to be highlighted because it's it's really that good. This is really good stuff for actors who are studying their craft. This podcast is brought to you by Backstage, the world's number one casting platform. Listen, a lot of the guests on In the Envelope, an awards podcast, used Backstage at the beginning of their careers. It's how they are now in the running for Emmy, for Oscar, for Tony, etc. If you are at the beginning of your career as an artist, here's what you do. You go to backstage.com slash subscribe and enter the code envelope at checkout for a free 30-day trial. That's right, free 30-day trial if you go to backstage.com slash subscribe and enter the code envelope. All you got to do then is make a profile, upload a headshot, and start applying to jobs to the thousands of casting notices that are uploaded every day, which you can filter online to match your specific talents, your specific needs, your specific looks. Get that dream started today. Check out that free 30-day trial, backstage.com slash subscribe, enter the code envelope. Let's do it. Melanie Linsky broke out as a teenage actor with Heavenly Creatures in her native New Zealand and has since become one of today's most compelling indie film stars. From Sweet Home Alabama, Hello I Must Be Going, Two and a Half Men, Togetherness, and Mrs. America, to now SAG Ensemble recognition for Netflix's Oscar-nominated Don't Look Up and a Critics' Choice Award nod for Showtime's hit drama Yellow Jackets, she has risen through Hollywood's ranks. Here is the phenomenal Melanie Linsky. Melanie, I'm. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm so good. I'm really, really excited to talk to you. I'm a. I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, thanks. Um, where Where are you right now, and what are you doing? What are you filming? I'm in Atlanta in a little rented house, and I'm filming um, a show called Candy, a Hulu limited series. Wonderful. Um, congratulations on your SAG nomination and all of the, and Critics' Choice nomination and all of the success right now. Oh, thanks so much. It's my first SAG nomination. I know. Yeah. Well, because we are backstage, I don't know how familiar you are with backstage, but, um, we love the SAG Ensemble award, you know, the, those awards because they're so acting specific and we are all about the craft and career advice for actors. And I'm going to ask you about ensemble acting and what makes great cohesive ensemble acting for sure. But First of all, why acting? Why did you start in this path? You started quite young. I did. I started professionally. I did my first movie when I was 15, but I loved acting before that. I was, I'm still pretty shy, but as a child, I was painfully shy, like had no friends, didn't know who to have lunch with, um, very awkward. We moved a lot. My dad was a student when I was born, and so we were moving all the time, and I was always the new kid Mm -hmm. and we were living in London for a year and I just, on a whim, I didn't tell anybody, I auditioned for a play at school and I just got a small part, but there was something even in the audition where I had lines to say and I was able to step into somebody who was not me for a minute Mm -hmm. and the freedom of being given a script, literally, and not having to be awkward, shy Melanie was, it just felt like drugs. It felt so powerful. <laughs> so I i just loved it after that. I tried to do everything I could. I did local theater. I did plays at church. I, I just, I did everything I could after that. 
Do you find it still that kind of, uh, maybe not drug, but is it, is it therapeutic? Like, is it good for you to be playing characters? Yes. Yeah, very much. And in fact, I got to a point where I realized every, every job that I've done that I haven't felt great about has been something I've done despite my instincts. Like I've done it because I was like, oh, a friend is making it or what's the harm or it's probably going to be good. And if I've ignored my little internal voice, it it just hasn't worked out for me. And like, I'm lucky to be in a position where I can choose what I do now, but it, it has to be something where there's something happening internally that, that makes sense to me. And I think it is partly having something to work out psychologically. There's always something in the characters that I don't really even understand until later. <laughs> I was going to say, do you always know what that is that you have to work work out? No. No. And I think it's become clearer to me in the last sort of uh, probably 15 or so years, maybe 20 years since I've been doing dream work because that's so much. Oh. Yeah. Your internal, what you're trying to process yourself is so much a part of your work. So I think... I've just been listening to that voice. And it can often be like a year later where I'm like, oh, I see what I was trying to figure out with that one. Yes. And then do you, do you, I mean, you've mentioned this idea of projects that you maybe wish you had reconsidered taking, but do you then look back and wish that you had done a different performance? Like, are there regrets in watching your body of work ever? I mean, honestly, like, I feel like I've always just tried to be as present as possible. Sure. And for some reason, I've always had this scrappy quality where I'll fight for what I want. I, you know, I'll fight with a director if I get given a note that doesn't seem in line with the character, in line with my instincts. You know, I'll try something interesting. I'll try something new for sure. But if somebody just wants something because it's how they saw it in their head and I know that it's not Hmm. in keeping with the person that I'm playing, I'll fight. I always have even when I had very limited options. So, yeah, yeah. the only things I regret are the things that I kind of knew I shouldn't have done to begin with. Yeah, listening to that instinct, yeah. Yeah. Um, I can tell this is going to be amazing because you are already giving really great advice for working, like working actors, early career actors, and you've already provided really great tips. Have you ever had a plan B? Did you ever consider doing anything else with your career? I, I did kind of because when I started to tell people I wanted to be an actor everybody was like that's not a real job okay I come from a province in New Zealand I there was one person from my town who was an actor a working actor Katie Wolf and she was like I held her up as like the example of it's possible but people just kept saying no 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 even after I did heavenly creatures everyone was like well you got lucky you had fun uh, now move on. But I didn't know what my plan B was. I, yeah. I kept trying to ask myself. I went to university for a year and a half, but I studied film and theater. It's what I was passionate about. Mm. I thought for a time I could be a film critic, not that there's much stability in that either. Sure. But I was like, how would I use the fact that I'm so passionate about performance and passionate about movies? Mm. And other than those those uh, years at school, you haven't had any formal training. That's mm-hmm. correct. I haven't had any formal training. I did a drama class as a child that was like dramatic improv that was really fun. And I did a lot of um, comedic improv at school, but I haven't had any any formal training. Would you characterize your yeah your training as on set on the job experience? Yes, very much. Yeah, and it's like I. I feel really grateful and on Heavenly Creatures they gave me a whole day to learn the ropes, to learn how to hit a mark, how to not look at the camera, how to find your light. They just gave me a free day essentially Um, and that was amazing to to have that because it was really nerve-wracking. But I, you know, the times when I really regret not having training are, you know, my agent is based in New York and she loves theatre. She always wants me to do theatre and I just feel like I'm lacking vocally. You know, there's just mm. some things that that you learn with training that you don't learn on a movie set. 
Sure. I mean, they are different. I would love to see you on stage. I, I, I think. <laughs> I just feel but, like um, people have worked their whole lives for that. Yeah. You know, people. It's there's like rigorous technique, and I just don't <laughs> have, sound like a mouse. <laughs> well, are there things that you do every time? Like, I'd love to ask about, you know, your craft and your process to the extent that you want to reveal secrets about it. I'm all about uncovering the secrets to the extent that people want to talk about them. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm happy to. Are there things that you do for every role? Tricks that you use every time? It, it becomes, it kind of unfolds as I'm working on it. I don't, I don't sit down and do a lot of script work. I I feel instinctively when I read something, if I if I know how to do it, if it feels right to me, and then I'll start listening to particular songs on the way to work or, you know, on my way to costume fittings, and then a song will become like a soundtrack for me. Very cool. And then I'll be like, okay, this is this person's theme, and sometimes I'll, I'll need the song to get prepared for a particular scene. Sometimes I'll just listen to it on the way to work. I think, I think a lot about the person. And then sometimes uh, on set, I use a lot of techniques from dream work, particular stances. Like there's this one way of standing that came to me once in a dream where my feet Mm. were planted very firmly into the ground. I kind of was like a tree. And for me, it literally makes me feel grounded and powerful and, and capable of whatever emotion I need to access. But mostly it's about dropping in and being present and, and trying to let the emotion come to me and not judging what it is and not having a particular mm. outcome that I'm expecting or wanting. Oh, that's great. How, how many takes do you typically do? And how, um, how different are each of your takes, would you say? Well, I've done a lot of independent movies, so I got used to two takes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I sometimes feel like it doesn't get better after that, but of course it it changes and sometimes it can. If I get a lot of takes, if I'm working with a director who wants a lot of takes, I don't really see the point in doing it the same way every time. Mm-hmm. I try to be surprised. I hope that I'm working with an actor who's going to surprise me. That's mm-hmm. always the, the most fun. Um, and I just, I like to explore it if I have the time to explore it. Mm-hmm. It's that thing of however much time you have to explore is, is, is what you, you'll use all of that time to figure it out. Yeah. But I do get bored if I'm being honest. Like if, okay. <laughs> if someone wants to do a lot of coverage, a lot of takes and there aren't really notes, it's just, okay, let's go again. I get a bit like, I love the spontaneity of it. I, right. It's hard to pretend you're hearing it for the first time when you're hearing it for the 25th time. Yes. Well, that's my other question. As you mentioned, being in the moment, I mean, there must be times when you feel yourself slipping out of it or you just feel yourself not in the moment. Mm-hmm. How do you get back in? It's different uh, every time. Um, the project I'm working on now, this is going to sound, I'm going to sound like a crazy person, but I'm going to say it anyway. We love it. We love it. Okay, good. I'm playing somebody who really lived and was brutally murdered. Uh-huh. And I'm working with a cast of people who I adore and I think are really, really fun. And we get very chatty in between takes. And I found that just having a little moment of quiet, even if it's after they say action, just uh-huh. taking a second. And with this particular job, I ask myself, is she here? And the she I'm talking about is the is Betty, this woman that I'm playing, who lived and died in this awful way. And I felt I have an internal feeling, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's me settling into a character or, or what, but mm. I feel a presence. And then the scene is going to be good no matter what it is. Mm. It feels like something that's sort of like taking over me. But usually... I just need a little moment of quiet. I usually mm. don't ask, is she here? <laughs> this is a new one for me. Okay. It just started happening. But I just, I do like to have a little moment where I can just settle into whatever the feeling of, of is of the scene, the moment before I walk in the door. I like to, to get a minute to be in the skin and just enter it as that person. 
Sure. I mean, do you think it's so interesting, the idea of playing a real person? It's always interesting to ask, you know, is the approach different for playing a fictional character versus a real one? But either way, you have to get in the moment. As you're saying, for different roles, you're coming up with different ways to do that. But are you ever like referring to the character in the first person? Do you only refer to them in the third person? Are you ever completely in character between takes? Oh, I go in and out. I don't have anything consistent. I don't mm-hmm. have any consistent process. If I'm doing an accent, I don't I don't have it on in between takes. Okay. And I'm always doing an accent. I never talk as myself. So yeah. um, I guess I don't stay in character. I You know, if it's something very, very, very emotional, I don't like to to be taken out of it too much. It sort of feels like treading water a little bit. Like you sort of stay in this place where you're kind of like floating a little bit, um, which can be hard to maintain if there's like a big lighting change or something like that. But um, I try Mm. to stay in it as much as I can. And what about accents? I have to ask you about accents. How do you do it? Where did the training come from? Well, now I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of really amazing dialect coaches. Um, Mm -hmm. Liz Himmelstein is so great. Carla Meyer is so great. I've worked with so many wonderful people. And I've built up a little library (laughs) of accents. Um, Initially, when I didn't have any money, I would just watch movies. I would do research on movies and I'd be like, here are movies that are set in New Jersey. Here are movies that are set in Oklahoma. Here are movies that are set in... Tennessee or whatever and I would try to watch those movies and listen for the differences in sound and just talk to myself while I was watching watch them over and over and over and sometimes it would come in handy mostly if I had a specific audition it would come in handy and then at a certain point I discovered this website the International Dialects of English Archive oh, okay um, IDEA and it was started by dialect coaches And they've written this like perfect little document, which has all the sounds you would need to hear in any accent. And they just travel the world and they have people read this little thing. It's a story called Comma Get Secure about a goose. And you just hear the different sounds in these accents and then they have people talk for a little while. And this website is just it's been a godsend. It's absolutely amazing for especially for auditions when you have to learn something quickly. That's terrific advice for, yeah, for those early career actors, as you're saying, they don't they have the money to spend on dialect coaches and acting coaches. And no, it's not smart to spend all that on one audition anyway. So no, it's not because it puts so much pressure on the audition as well. Even when I would like buy an outfit for an audition, oh. I'd be like, this is $120 I've already spent. Like, you know, it just, yeah. I, I get very nervous before auditions anyway. So I, as much stress as I can take out of it, I'll, I'll try to take it out. I mean, that's very much a uh, question we always ask. Like, what is the audition philosophy? Is it different from acting? Are you? Do you consider yourself good at it? I think I'm awful at it. I think it's a whole other, I think it's a different skill. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that I don't have to audition as much now because it's not easy for me. I went to a, um, a therapist who specializes in stage fright because I had such a problem. Really? And he gave me the greatest piece of advice I've ever gotten, which is to do a bunch of jumping jacks and run in place and then do the scenes for the audition and do that over and over and over so that when you get to the audition and you start to feel sweaty and your heart's pounding, you've already done it in that state. Oh, okay. Changed my life. You're mimicking the physiological response. Yeah. So you're when not, you're practicing. You don't, your panic doesn't heighten by being like, oh, God, now I can feel my heart. Oh, I'm sweaty. You're already used to, and and doing it, like, by yourself in your apartment with full commitment after jumping up and down for two minutes, you know. It just, it changed everything because I didn't, I didn't start to go, oh, no, oh, no, how do I fight against this? And and relaxation is key, and it sounds too like um, a lack of desperation, is key. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, if you've spent $120 on the dress, then you're really invested in that. You're bringing that into the role, oh, into the no. audition. I've never been good at that lack of desperation thing. Oh, well, <laughs> I, just, I guess it's good to know that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. This is all terrific advice. I've never heard this idea of raising your heart rate and doing jumping jacks to mimic the nerves of an audition when you practice. It Honestly, it, it changed my life. 
That is wild. Yeah. In those early career auditioning days, I mean, you did have an unusual career path with Heavenly Creatures, but mm-hmm. looking back, is there anything you would do differently? Is there anything you wish you'd known? Oh, yeah. I wish I had stopped trying to be so much like other people. Because, uh-huh. you know, I got out to Los Angeles and there was a particular look in the late 90s and it was very thin and mm. white and blonde. And, you know, there was just a thing it seemed like people were looking for. And I tried to be as thin as I could. I tried to be as pleasant as I could. And it, there's already 50 of those people. Like they can sure. take their pick from this group of people who are already doing it. So a better thing to have done would have been for me to just be like, well, there's one me. And as soon as I learned that lesson, things got a lot easier for me. Mm. How? What would you say that turning point was? Was there a specific epiphany around that? Honestly, I had very um, disordered eating for a long time, if I'm being honest. I had like a yeah. full-on eating disorder and... I fell in love with someone on a movie, as was my <laughs> my way in my oh. early 20s. Um, and he was really horrified by my eating disorder. It really broke his heart. It was the first time I'd been very open and vulnerable with somebody. Mm. And he started doing things like cooking and not letting me see what he was cooking and taking all the control away from me. Oh. And I started to be a bit more normal with how I ate and what my body was like. And I had to really make peace with the fact that I was never going to be stick thin. I'm just, it is what it is. And I just, I, I got to a level of comfort with my body that I didn't know if I would ever be able to have. And it really freed me up, I think, to go into audition rooms and to be freer on set. Like there are, there are movies that I watch especially from my early 20s where I see myself like trying to cover mm. my my body and I'm just like, oh, you're tiny. And, sure. you, you know, and it, you can't give like a full performance if there's a little part of your brain that's worried about whether you have a little stomach roll. It's just, yeah, it's a waste of energy. It's a waste of emotional energy. And it's just, it's not, it's it's so great to have different bodies represented on screen. And I think for me, um, that was a turning point for me where I just let go of that pressure and it freed my brain up. Yeah. yeah. I just was like, oh, wow, the world. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point and great advice. And, and thank you for sharing because I do think that still today, of course, and I think this is very largely true of women mm-hmm. in the industry, I mean, how many examples were there or still are there of female actors? I mean, just women appearing on camera who have that kind of confidence and that kind Mm -hmm. of self-assuredness that they should lean into their uniqueness rather than, as you're saying, trying to copy paste and be more (laughs) pale, thin, white, (laughs) everything that you, the beauty norms, as you say, that everybody's trying to do. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's vastly improved from when I started, but Hmm. it's still... You know, it's so hard to get into the business to begin with. It's so hard to get a job. And then if you're a person who's underrepresented in film or television, there's just so many more obstacles. And it's just, you know, I'm I'm excited to see that there's so much more diversity, you know, body-wise that there's starting to be a bit more, but certainly like racial diversity is such an important thing. And it's exciting to see that that really does seem to be happening. Yeah. Which, yeah, that is really good to hear. Yeah. Well, what I really wanted to ask you about, and I think this is where I can ask you about Shauna and Yellow Mm -hmm. Jackets. How much does your femininity, this might be a really weird question. And if it's too weird and personal, we can cut it from the podcast. Okay. (laughs) I just feel like on the one hand, the story of Shauna is reminiscent of every example of a woman being not being allowed to express herself or obtain what she really wants. And mm-hmm. it's because she's a woman. And on the other hand, is that just every female role? Because every role that you play is, is being reflected in our in our society. <laughs> like mm-hmm. in constructing a character, are you thinking about the gender of the character? Like how much are you consciously thinking about your femininity? I think it's something I'm always thinking about because as a young woman, 
I became pretty obsessed with, you know, I was like 12, 13, 14 during the big like third wave of feminism in the 90s. Okay. And I'm very grateful for that. It was a very formative time for my thinking, even though it took me a long time to let go of my disordered eating and my ideas about my body. I was reading a lot and I did have a big sort of library of feminist reading that was very important to me. Great. And I always think about that. I just, I think about it when I read a script. I think about it when I'm playing a part. And for Shauna, it was really the first time in my life, maybe I would say I don't feel at home in this world anymore is another example of a woman who's just not existing within the male gaze at all. (laughs) No. She's just a, a human being. Yes. And I loved it. And I don't feel at home in this world that it was kind of a vigilante movie starring a woman. (laughs) That's not very common. (laughs) And the thing I love about Yellow Jackets and about my character is she does stuff that a man would do and nobody blinks an eye. Like the male anti-hero is a very celebrated thing in television. Yes. And people, from what I see in like comments and what people are saying to me on the internet... Some people are having a hard time with it. And it's saying things like, well, why didn't she cry when she killed her lover? It's like... And it must be a gendered thing because are they asking those same questions of male actors? I know. Are they watching The Sopranos? Like, hmm, he doesn't seem right. remorseful enough. Like, no. It's And I think also there's something about playing someone who's a wife and a mother and there's an expectation that comes along with that of being like nurturing, maternal, loving, soft... And when somebody can just be kind of ice cold and do stuff that is quite remorseless, I think it's very confronting for people. I, I don't uh. think they're used to seeing both of those things at the same time. And it's been really interesting, and I feel really lucky to have this opportunity to do that. Absolutely. I love that you described her as an antihero because I think they all are in I this show. I think they all are, yeah. And it's like we shouldn't... The participation in the trope of anti-hero, it can't just be male. It can't. It shouldn't even be gendered. It, it shouldn't be gendered. There's so many things that shouldn't be gendered. It <laughs> just still are. Yeah. And there there do seem to be a lot more stories about the portraying mother, challenging the, those conventions of motherhood that you're mentioning. Like, I don't know if you saw The Lost Daughter. <gasps> oh, I did. I loved it. <laughs> oh, my God. Because that really complicated, really took head on the notions of what mothers are supposed to do. Oh yeah, very much. <laughs> it's such a such a brave movie and mm. it's hard for women to talk about and that's part of yeah. what is so hard about being a mother is you're just expected to, to be everything to everybody and just saying, oh, I'm so blessed, I'm so blessed and you're not ever allowed to be like, I'm tired, you know, this yeah. is, people are driving me crazy. I want to lock myself in a closet for 24 hours. Yeah, or just the humanity, just having some three-dimensionality is sort of denied people in stories. I mean, mm-hmm. your Sweet Home Alabama role, like this scene of you breastfeeding in a bar, mm-hmm. I think I think from what I've read, it's just kind of become in retrospect this symbol of, I guess, a, I mean, I guess it's an example of feminism, whereas, but this is why it's like a bigger conversation about what art can do, because yeah. <laughs> you're also just there to entertain us, right? <laughs> Yeah. That scene is funny. That scene is funny. And sometimes that's the the way in, you know, sometimes yeah. that's the easiest way in. It's like, oh, you're laughing. Well, that's what you were hoping to accomplish. Yeah. Or one of the things you were hoping. And that's why I guess it does tie into your character creation process. Because it's this thing of when you're creating a character, are you first and foremost thinking about gender norms and subverting gender norms? Like not necessarily, but it does factor in. It it absolutely factors in. It factors in mostly when I read something. If if I read something and it has a very gendered description of a character, yeah, it turns me off. I, it's hard for me. I have a judgment on the writer. If mm. I read something that describes the character's body, I'm just like, ah, now I kind of hate you. <laughs> now I hate you a little bit. I'm going to finish your script because I finish every single script. Mm. But... You know, I'm always looking for something that's a little more subversive, a little more interesting. Okay. And I want to challenge it. I th- I think when you get to a point where you're able to choose a little bit what you're doing, there is a certain amount of responsibility. 
to to tell stories that are going to push the needle a little bit, move the conversation along. Yeah, I I do think I do think I, I should be doing that. Yeah, and you and you obviously like most actors, you're looking for that three dimensionality. You're looking for emotional nuance and mm-hmm. maybe yeah. I love this idea of like if you see a red flag, then that factors into your decision about whether or not to take a role. That's super helpful advice too. Yeah. Um, can I ask about rage? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, Sean has a great example. Like your Sean is expressing rage in ways that maybe subvert, that maybe are not expected. Mm-hmm. Um, I find the ways that actresses, specifically female actors, mm-hmm. portray rage can be really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your relationship to those kinds of intense emotions? Oh, it's the hardest. It's been the hardest thing for me as an actor and as a human. Mm. I did group therapy for five years. It's one of the greatest things I've ever done in terms Mm. of learning about myself. It's one of the greatest things I've ever done, like as an actor, honestly, because it breaks down all social protocol and you learn to have a conversation with somebody where you're not worried about what they think and you're allowing them to project whatever they need to upon you. Mm. So as an actor, it's a very healthy thing to let go of ego, let go of ego, listen, be present for somebody, be their wife, be their mother, be whatever, somebody who shamed them in school. And so that was a really wonderful thing for me. But the thing I learned over and over again in group was that I have a very hard time with anger. I'll send mm. it anywhere else I can. I hate confronting mm. people. I I find it really hard to get angry. I wasn't really yeah. brought up with that being a thing that we were allowed to show. And I think partly that's why I started with my, you know, obsessive like dieting and my disordered eating is like having a modicum of control and having rage that you don't know what to do with. Mm. And so it's been a learning process for me as an actor to be like, to just be angry and not, not be afraid of looking silly Mm. and not be afraid of letting it out and having it never stop, (laughs) which was another thing I was scared of. There was a moment on Togetherness, the show I did with the Duplass brothers, Mm -hmm. where I had to really yell at Mark. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, there was a lot of improv on the show, which I really loved. And I ended up basically improvising that entire thing that I yelled at him. Mm. Because there was a lot of uh, rage that I already had inside me that needed to come out. Yeah. And you're talking about you personally, your rage. Mm Mm-hmm. And the character's rage. I mean, it became one okay. and the same in that moment because I had rage about similar things. But okay. yeah, so that was kind of, and it felt so great to really go there and really commit to it. And it yeah. was the first time I really sort of blacked out <laughs> sure. when I was doing a scene that when I was angry. And after that, I've had an easier time, I think. Okay, Wow. Because that sort of sounds like the acting sweet spot between like between what you just said about your issues and your rage coinciding with the characters mm-hmm. and the lack of ego is a really important ingredient there, right? Oh, yeah. And the scene partner and the listening. Oh, my gosh, yes. You need a scene partner who is not yeah. going to be judgmental. I remember my, my ex-husband, Jimmy Simpson, is an amazing, amazing actor and he was doing a scene once with somebody and um, he he had to be angry in the scene and he really like went for it in the first take and the actor he was working with said, whew, somebody's got their close-up and made this kind of snarky comment about like, oh, it's in your close-up, like you're really going for it and just judged his performance. Oh. And it, oh, that made me mad. <laughs> and it really embarrassed him. Like yeah. it was a really crappy moment and then the rest of the scene... He Mm. was on the back foot, you know, and you might not necessarily be working with people who who go so far as to say something like that to you, but sometimes you sort of feel people like, "Mm," you know, and so to have someone who's like generous and present, like Mm. Mark Duplass is as an actor and was for me that day is a really, um, it's a really big deal. So where does improv fall into that? Because this is where I I love to ask about the SAG Ensemble nomination. Mm. I love this idea of an ensemble award because acting is often 
bigger than the sum of its parts. Um, how much improv was there in Don't Look Up? What is the what is staying in that moment in that world like? <laughs> oh my gosh, I was so intimidated. <laughs> I, oh, I was so nervous. My first day was with Kate Blanchett and Leonardo DiCaprio, and luckily I had worked <laughs> with Kate before on Mrs. America. So I knew that she was kind and wonderful and I think our greatest actor, like I can't think of anybody who's better, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I felt good about that, but it was very scary. But Adam McKay works in my favorite way. It's similar to how the Duplasses work, which is yeah. there's a script that's written that's absolutely perfect. You wouldn't need to change a word of it. You have this incredible safety net of this great, 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 funny, wonderful script but he wants to be surprised like the Duplasses do. Like mm -hmm. they want to hear something new and for it to feel really fresh and for your actor, the actor you're working with to hear something new. Cool. So he really encouraged improv. He loved a lot of improv and we did so much of it and he would edit it down as we were going. He would say, okay, keep that line. Uh -huh. I love that. But you improv at the end, um, take this middle thing out. So, it was a constantly changing cool. and evolving thing. And it was so fun. And you mentioned that you had taken a dramatic improv class. Like, is there a difference between drama improv and comedy improv? Well, I was a child, first of all, but yeah. <laughs> the, the improv class, we just would make up scenes, but they weren't supposed to be funny. It was just sort of living, existing. You'd get a situation... And then I did a lot of what we called in New Zealand theatre sports, which is like UCB kind of um, improv -y stuff, mm -hmm. um, theatre games and stuff like that, where you do comedic improv. So I had done both of those and they, they were so different to me, but they both give you the same skills. I really, I love improv. I have a hard time when I have to just stick to the script. It's a, it's a fun challenge for me, but it's not easy. <laughs> That's so interesting because I feel like improv, well, it's just very difficult, but it also just seems like you've described yourself as shy and mm -hmm. also uh, maybe just having the one or two takes. So it's hard to see how improv like does fit into that. It can be an expression of the character's innermost mm. thoughts. I mean, it's crazy sometimes what comes out. Yeah. Are you learning in real time about the character you're playing as you're doing the improv? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> like there's a one scene on Yellow Jackets where Tawny and I are in my daughter's bedroom and I improvise the whole speech I have about college and falling in love with someone who's like the editor of a, you know, magazine or whatever. Uh. Like that's based on an actual love story I did have in college. If you can call it a <laughs> love story, it's not really... True, but it was it was based on my life, but it just kind of came out because I was like, that seems like a fun thing that Shauna would feel that she would wish for. Mm. And it's just nice to get to surprise the person you're working with by telling them a story they haven't heard before. Love that. And again, that sweet spot of like finding where your experiences overlap with the characters. I know, it's my favorite thing. I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, well... But for Yellow Jackets, I mean, I really like, I like asking about TV or long form storytelling, which is mostly just TV. Like there are things you do not know about this character's backstory, mm -hmm. especially on this show where we are learning. We're also watching the backstory unfold. You don't know what's happening to young Shauna's baby, do you? I don't know what's happening to young Shauna's <laughs> baby because I think I put kind of blinders up or whatever that's called. I think... I was at a difficult time in my own life with uh, fertility and stuff like that, and I think I couldn't I couldn't hear about anything bad happening to a baby. It just felt too uh, upsetting to me, so I just didn't ask. But other than that, I asked every single question. I drove them absolutely crazy. I would come up to the writers on set and I'd feel them sort of like, <sighs> like take a deep breath, like what does she need now? Somebody was like, you really keep us on our toes. And it, for me, I want to give them all the room in the world to come up with the best story that they can. I know it's evolving. I know it's changing. I'm not going to hold anyone to anything. 
But there are moments when we'd be referring to something like oh, there's a scene in the car where Tawny's character Taisa says, Natalie is the reason we got out of the woods, you know, she's the reason right. we made it. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, she's a big, and I said, no, 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 I don't want the pitch version. You need to tell me. You wrote that for a reason. So what is your specific reason? It can change down the line. But for now, why are you writing that? And so they said, here's why. And for me, having a specific memory, the character having a specific memory is necessary. I can't just be vaguely saying, oh, mm -hmm, Natalie saved us. I, I need to be remembering things you know it's how your brain works so they were really good about giving me a lot of examples like that when I would come and pressure them <laughs> yeah well I, th- I mean I think it's great advice to actors to ask questions and to be mm-hmm. kind of responsible for their characters they're the they're the authority on their characters right yeah I, I mean I ask all the questions I'm a nightmare <laughs> I'm a nightmare I am but <laughs> But it's so interesting that you say that the answer that they give you, it's okay if it changes because mm-hmm. aren't, I mean, isn't the whole point of this is that you don't want to point, paint yourself into a corner. You're trying to fill out backstory so that you have that, but not perform anything that might contradict itself later. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I, I, I would be mad if they changed, they told me something and then they changed it to the complete opposite. Yeah. But I think our showrunners are, were first time Uh, Well, our writers, it was the first time they had created their own show. And I think they were slightly nervous about us giving away things in our performance. Okay. If they gave us too much information. Yeah. And I think over time we convinced them that it's fun to be able to play something underneath what you're saying. Right. And that on a rewatch, people might say, oh, I see what else she's doing there. But when someone's mm. watching it for the first time, I don't I don't think you can give away secrets if it's not in the dialogue. So, so I think they came to trust us a little bit more with all of that. Yeah, and this this idea of Natalie being the one who saved them, that example is great because you're saying you just want something specific mm-hmm. to fuel to fuel your specific choices. Yeah. And as long as it doesn't completely something in the plot doesn't contradict that later, which it probably won't, then you're good. Yeah. Then you have a, a roadmap. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I don't think anything is going to contradict what they told me. And the same with, like, when Jackie started appearing to me, I was like, well, what happened? And they, you know, they didn't want to commit to what happened exactly. Mm-hmm. So as much as they knew, I made them tell me the context of, of how she died. Like, I was like, I, I want to know the feeling I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it the feeling of, oh, my God, I murdered somebody? Is it the feeling of I did something that caused this to happen? You know, and it's just there's shading in there that's really important. Yeah. But, but it's also interesting you mentioned this walling off idea because you've mentioned PTSD in reference to this, to this character. Are, mm-hmm. Is there a little bit of leeway in terms of, like, somebody who's processing or not processing their trauma to remove themselves from that trauma. I I think so. That's, I mean, I, I think with super traumatic things, this particular character is somebody who, who doesn't let themselves feel it until they absolutely mm-hmm. have to. Mm-hmm. So all the stuff with Adam, when she starts to get suspicious of Adam and then murders him, and covers it up I don't think I think she's like 10 steps behind herself as she's chopping up the body I don't think she's even been present in the room where she stabs him yet I think that all of that is going to come so much later because she's just trapped in this like PTSD this sort of cycle of of not feeling where she is in the moment because she went through a hugely traumatic thing and I think she learned to just escape it and take herself away and she just, she's going through the motions. And I think at some point, my my hope is that at some point it'll all just hit her. Mm. And she'll just be like, you know, because you can't escape your trauma forever. I think it's true for all of us. It just keeps creeping back up. And eventually you have to turn around and say, what do you want? <laughs> How am I going <laughs> to deal with you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like you said about rage. It's, it's coming in and you don't know how it's going to come out, especially if you're 
you're pushing it down. Mm -hmm. But how do you perform somebody who's not present while you have to remain present as an actor? For me, it was separating my own emotions from her emotions and actually the act of having to suppress the emotion for myself because when I would think about being in that moment, it would make me cry. There were scenes I was doing with Jeff, who played my husband, where he was unconditionally loving and supportive and Mm. revealed, I've always loved you. And she doesn't... She doesn't have the time or the emotional energy in that moment to sit there and and weep about it. Hmm. She has to, she just has to get out the door and do the next thing she has to do. But for me, that's one of the most moving things I can hear. I think that's so beautiful and it makes me cry my eyes out. So yeah. off camera for Warren, I was like sobbing. Okay. And then for my own stuff, I was just trying to like force that emotion back down. Hmm. And just say, I'll see you later, you know. And I, it was just a matter of just remembering this is not a person who is allowing themselves those moments. It's not somebody who's had the yes. therapy that I've had who can be yeah. in the moment and the feeling. Yeah. Gosh, that is such a really, it's such a brilliant illumination of your process, of your relationship with your characters and how sometimes they're right there, heart like your two heartbeats are beating as one. And mm-hmm. sometimes you have to, put this separation between them. Yeah. And as you're saying, it's just different for every role. It's probably different for every scene. Yeah. 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 It is. It is. But there's basic truths about a character. And I think part of the reason it's so important to me to feel it when I read it initially is because then you don't question that instinct. You're you're not trying to figure the character out while you read the script. It's like instinctively... You've already said, I know this person. I know how this person operates. And you can just say, this is right. This isn't right. And it's like yourself. You know, if somebody says, hey, do you want to get up and start dancing right now? You'll either be like, yes, I do. Or no, I don't. You have to know your character. You don't need to have a whole conversation. Would she want to dance right now? I wonder how she, you know, I think you should just know it in your body. Yeah. So great. Um, Melanie, thank you so much. This has been so amazing. And you've said things that have never been said on this podcast before, which at this point is really saying something. That's so Um, sweet. Thanks. I have to ask you some silly actually questions. But first, I did want to, I kind of actually want to touch on Two and a Half Men. Sure. And this idea of like, and I do think it's reminiscent of the early career acting advice because you've mentioned a couple times this notion of you are now in a position to be able to choose roles. Mm -hmm. And I think that for a lot of actors maybe a lot of actresses, Mm -hmm. you have to work your way to that point and be really shrewd about making those choices. How conscious was your decision to do Two and a Half Men, but then take a step back to just being a guest actor on that show so that you could focus on indie film? Well, I did Two and a Half Men right when I got my green card. So it was my first pilot season. It was the first time I was able to go out for a pilot season. Okay, okay. And... I was scared. I I was scared of the commitment, but this was just a guest star in the pilot. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, this is an interesting challenge to go and do a live studio audience comedy. I've never done that before. Oh, okay. And again, I had that thing when I read it where I was like, I know exactly how to play this part. <laughs> and I, I thought of something that felt kind of different and interesting and I just thought if they're not into it, well, I don't care. This is not like my life's dream to, to be on a sitcom. Okay. And then when we did the pilot, I loved the audience participation. I It really was fun. It really was so fun. And yeah, I mean, it was at a time in my career where I had never, ever, ever had financial stability. And even okay. though what I got paid on Two and a Half Men was the absolute minimum that they were allowed to pay an actor because I'd never done a pilot before (laughs) or a show. It still, for me, was so much money. Yeah. And just to know that you were making money, like the freedom of that. And I I feel really lucky that when it felt kind of played out for me, I was able to have a conversation with Chuck Lorre, who created the show, and he let me go. He let me come Mm. back in a recurring capacity And it was just a case of making a decision like, okay, I have some financial stability now. I don't need to get rich 
from the show. I understood that everybody on the show was about to get very, very rich. <laughs> but I was like, I think I'm going to make a decision to build my career now that I, for the first time in my life, have money in the bank. Sure. So I was really lucky. I got to go and do independent movies and then come back and do three or four episodes of Two and a Half Men and pay the mortgage. And that was all I needed, you know. I wasn't yeah. living lavishly. And, you know, there were things sometimes in the writing and in the show that I felt a little compromised by and I tried to subvert it as best I could with my okay. performance. Um <laughs> But at the end of the day, I really, I loved who I was working with and and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for being able to do independent movies, being able to afford to. Right. Yeah. Because to me, it sort of sounds like that's so many actors dream. Like you've sort of cracked the code of how to balance making art and making commercial art. Yeah. I mean, it did feel like I was living two lives for a while. <laughs> like I remember I was doing the movie Win Win uh -huh. and Tom McCarthy, the director, was like, all the background actors are talking about you and they're saying you're on a sitcom. You didn't know. And I felt like I'd been caught, you know, <laughs> like my secret life. I was like, um, yeah. And he was like, are you on Two and a Half Men? I was like, mm -hmm, kind of. <laughs> kind of. And for so many American audiences, they don't know about your indie film work. Oh, yeah. People ask yeah. me all the time, like, do you ever think about acting again? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, I do. I think about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think about it all the time. I think about it all the time. And, you know, sometimes I'll be with my daughter and they're like, oh, you had a baby. That's why, you know, they oh, think I just a, stopped, stopped acting, which is funny. Taking a break. Breastfeeding in the bar. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Okay, wait, I have to, um, we talked about auditions. I have to ask you, we ask everyone, do you have a worst audition horror story? Yeah. That you would care to relive? Speaking of PTSD. Yeah, I know. Well, I did this one audition for something and the character was like deeply traumatized. had gone through this awful thing and wasn't really speaking. It was saying like a few words. And I did the take once and the casting director said, um, she's completely catatonic. And I was like, I thought I was doing that, but I, I did it again. And she just kept saying more catatonic, more <laughs> catatonic. And so by the end of it, I was just like, just completely expressionless and I could feel she was getting so mad at me but she didn't use a different word oh. and then she called my agent and said she was doing absolutely nothing she was just blank what yeah and I just it was very frustrating <laughs> and I think now I would say I would say like is, are there any other descriptors you can use? Because I think I might be misunderstanding. I tried to put it on myself, but I just was trying to take the note, and yep. it was it was very frustrating. Also, once I auditioned to play Janis Joplin. Oh. That was... You did not book the role. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. It's just not. It's not for me. I, And that's another thing I got good at, reading a script and being like, this is amazing. This is so good. Whoever does it is going to be great. I'm I'm not the person not to bring Janis Joplin to the screen. Sure. Well, and that does speak more to that. Like, it's really cool to hear the process of actors who read scripts and what, what you do go through. Because as you're saying, sometimes there's no red flags and it's great. And you know the character's great. But mm -hmm. it doesn't have that resonance with you. It doesn't have the overlap. Yeah. And so therefore, you're, you're not, you're not going to audition for those. Like, do you ever, are you ever on the fence and just go for it anyway? No. Not anymore. No. It's just not. The worst thing for me is feeling like I'm acting. Oh. Like there are challenges. I, I love the thought of playing somebody who's different to something I've done before. I love, you know, trying a different accent. I, there's a lot of different things that I love. But if I don't, if I don't know internally how to do it, it's, it's just not worth it to me. It's torture. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, Melanie, thank you so much. Uh, last question. Do you have not a favorite performance, but maybe something you've seen recently? Like, what is one performance you think every actor should see and study? Um, and I mean, you mentioned Kate Blanchett as like a top tier oh, actor for you. Yes, for sure. She's, she's probably my favorite. The talented cool. Mr. Ripley. I love her in Blue yeah. Jasmine. 
It's just one of the greatest performances. There's so many of Kate. Regina Hall is one of my favorite actors. Ugh, same. Because she can do anything. She's so, so, so funny. And she's so deep. And she's a movie star. And she's just like, (sighs) oh, God, it's just endless, the things I I could list. Um, Support the Girls was really nice because it's nice to see her in something that was so kind of like ramshackle and fun. Yes. Um, But anything. Olivia Coleman, like you were talking about The Lost Daughter, Olivia Coleman's just my dream, my hero. Um, mm. I, God, there are so many people. I just saw um, The Worst Person in the World. Yes. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how to pronounce the actress's name. The Ren- Norwegian. Renata. Yeah. 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 But the lead actress in that, um, mm-hmm. it's just whew, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I also loved Zola. I love Taylor Page and Zola. Me too. Oh, yeah. whew, God. Everybody in Zola. Yeah. I loved everybody in Zola, but she, like, just flew off the screen for me. I was like, yeah. I just, I want to see you in everything. I cannot wait. I think she's amazing. Yeah. Well, I must say you have excellent taste in movies Thanks. and actors. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Melanie Linsky, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been so fun and so insightful. Thank you. you. I mean, you're an amazing interviewer. Your questions oh. are so great. It's Thank been you. so fun. Such a pleasure. I feel like I've been rambling a bit, but you've been very patient. I like a, I like the rambling. I like, I want it to sound rambling. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Well then, well then you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City and Soundbox LA, Mark Grau Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Thanks as always to our producer extraordinaire, Jamie Muffet, and to the team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage by using the code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. That's right, 100% free. For more exclusive content, join us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Who would you like us to interview next? Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another glimpse in the envelope.